I invite you to take your Bible, if you haven't already, and turn to John. And we're in John chapter 13. We began John chapter 13 last week as we have transitioned kind of into what, what is the second part, or not the second part, but the, one of the, the next major part um, in the Gospel of John. You know, if, you, if you we're going to split it in two, I guess you would kind of divide it right after John chapter 12 when Jesus' public ministry ends. And now we have gotten into this part where Jesus is, is with his disciples. Um, he's at what we commonly call the Last Supper. And he is, last week he showed his disciples his love. He illustrated that love that, and the reason he came was to serve. And of course, he physically served those disciples there at that Last Supper, washing their feet. And he called on them to serve one another. And we talked about that passage and what that means for our lives together last week. And so now, Jesus continues on in the same, uh, the same setting, continues to speak to his disciples. And what you see in verses 18 through 30 today is that Jesus is the sovereign Lord of salvation. Let's look at John chapter 13, and we'll consider verses 18 through 30. This will be our text today. Jesus is, is continuing from what he said last time. When he said if, in verse 17, he said, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped that morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. Father, we thank you for the time we have set aside in our service today to study the Word of God together. We thank you for the perfect, preserved Word of God that we have for us today. We thank you that it is timeless, that it speaks uh, to whatever need we have going on in our heart and lives today. Lord, even though that may, there, there may be something in our life that you bring to the forefront of our minds that isn't part of the message today, that's because you work in your perfect way through your word. And we ask that today you would do that work in our hearts. You would open our hearts and our minds, you would open our lives to the work of the Holy Spirit, and that you would use your word in a powerful way today. Lord, I pray that what I say and do here today wouldn't distract from the message that you would like uh, for us to hear and to understand, and that you would speak to us through your Holy Word and through your Holy Spirit today. May you Show those who do not know you as Savior, if there's one here today or who hears these things who has never trusted in you, that, that Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord of salvation, that he has come, lived a perfect life, given himself, and risen again to save them from sin. 
Lord, to, to Christians today, I pray that you would continue to convict us of sin, show us in, how, in what, what ways and in how we can live for your honor and your glory with your help. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation in life where you felt like things were out of control? Maybe it's a temporary situation. Perhaps you signed up to work in a children's ministry in your local church, or you're in a setting with students in a classroom, and you, you begin to look around and go, well, I don't really know who's running things, but it's not the adults. Right? You felt like things were out of control. But however, I guess when I ask a question like that, if you ever felt like things were out of control, I, we, our minds probably go to the more worrisome situations where we feel like the circumstances of our lives are out of our control. The bad news keeps coming, the decisions that we have to make seem impossible to make, and we struggle to see how things are going to sort themselves out uh, out of this mess that we find ourselves in. And in moments like these, who you trust in has a lot to do with how you handle what's in front of you. One of the truths that we come across in Scripture time and again is this, God is sovereign. And that's a word we use a lot in church, right? We say the sovereignty of God or God is sovereign. But what does that mean? Well, it means that, that God exercises authority over all things. He works everything according to his perfect will and good pleasure so that no matter what happens, we can trust that our God is over all and working in all things. And here is Jesus in John chapter 13 as he prepares his disciples for his impending death and resurrection, seeking to continue to grow their faith in him as the sovereign Lord of all. That's one of the main themes, the biggest theme I think you see in this passage before us today is the sovereignty, the control, the the authority of God, and Jesus is God in all of these things. We see here God's sovereign and wonderful plan to bring about the salvation of mankind from sin, and he even uses sinful choices of men in this great and glorious work. So what is the main thing? What what can we take away from this passage today? That's because God is sovereign. His eternal purposes and plans will be accomplished in all things. You cannot take away the sovereignty of God. It is part of his nature. That is who he is. When you look at at a list of the attributes of God, this is one that's going to be near the top of the list, that he is in control. He works everything to his goodwill and his good pleasure. And and we may look around, and we're going to look at the passage today and talk about some things that, that alarm us as human beings and say, well, I don't know how that's going to work out. It doesn't matter how we think it's going to work out. God is in control. And Jesus shows that even as he prepares to face the cross. And remember, here in this passage, as he's in, the, in the coming chapters, Jesus is spending time with his disciples, growing their faith in him, because you know they're not everything they should be, right? But then again, how many of us are everything we should be, even as Christians? And here are these guys who have walked with Jesus for the last three years, and Jesus knows what faces them. If you'll look back at the first part of John chapter 13, remember the motivation that Jesus has here. He says, at the end of verse 1, John says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So because Jesus has this agape, this, this self-sacrificial love for his disciples, he continues to instruct them in these things and show them here the sovereignty of God and the things that he faces. And really, there's just two major sections here that we're going to look at today, and the first one comes in verses 18 through 20, and we're going to look at God's sovereign plan 
in this, in this work of salvation. In verse 18, now Jesus makes a prediction regarding his disciples. He says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So here is Jesus having given instruction to his disciples on their calling to serve. And then in verse 17, you'll remember he said, um, here's, here's the benefit. If you serve, if you do the things that I have called you to do, to serve one another, he says in verse, the end of verse 17, blessed are you if you do them. And I told you that word means happy. is typically how we think of it. But, but the idea is, is favored by the grace of God. You, and then we talked about you have that grace and that favor in your life because you have a right relationship with God. Because a right relationship with God begins with salvation in Jesus Christ, and it continues with obedience to the things of God by the work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, if you do these things, blessed are if you do them. Then he continues, but I'm not talking about every single person in the room. Because in the room that night is one of the disciples who had betrayed Jesus. His name is Judas. And specifically, of course, Judas Iscariot. There's, there's two disciples named Judas. And when you read the scriptures, the one is always identified as Judas Iscariot, and one is Judas not Iscariot. I can almost see that guy going, now put that in there every time, right? Judas not Iscariot, okay? Because it's important, right? But here's, this, here's Jesus telling his disciples, hey, what I tell you is true, but it's not true about every single one of you. Because those who do not place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and find new life in him cannot live lives of obedience to God. Thus, they cannot enjoy the blessings of a relationship with God. And we see that play out in our lives today because some people have different ways that they treat the Bible. They look at the Bible as some sort of rule book or they see it as a, nice, a collection of nice sayings and some stories. They see it as a, a guide to living a virtuous life. And if you see the Bible as any of those things that I've just mentioned, you have failed to understand what the Bible is. The Bible is the word of God. It is God's revealed truth about himself and who we are, and how to have a relationship with him, and everything we need to know, for, as Peter would say, everything that pertains to life and godliness. You must have God's help to understand this wonderful, life-giving word. And you can try all you want to frame your life by its teachings on your own, but you will discover that you will not be able to do this on your own. You can look in the Bible and say, well, here's some nice things I'm supposed to do or things I'm not supposed to do, and I'm just going to make myself do those things or not do those things. And you can try that if you want, but it's not going to work out. There's a well-known um, uh, historical figure in American history. His name is Benjamin Franklin. Maybe you've heard of him. And he composed a list of what he considered virtues that everyone should follow. He said, I'm going to follow these virtues. I'm going to work on them. He would take them one at a time, and he would work on this virtue for a set amount of time until he felt he had mastered it. And then he would go on to the next virtue. And you know what he found out? As he worked on the subsequent virtues, all the ones he worked on before, he didn't, he didn't keep those up like he thought he had mastered them. You and I, in our own strength, cannot do the things that God has called us to do. We need the help of God. And the first thing that we need to do, we need to be recreated by God. And that's exactly what Jesus does at salvation. He regenerates. He, he gives us life. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but he has made us alive. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5, 17? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So God, in his sovereign plan, sent Jesus to die for the sins of man. And in Jesus, we can be made a new creation, indwelt by the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live for God's glory. And please don't mistake what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that you you get saved and poof, you never do anything wrong again. You're still going to struggle as a Christian as you seek to follow God and his leading and submit to the Holy Spirit. But what I'm telling you is you can never live for God if you don't know Jesus Christ. It doesn't come without the other. One doesn't come without the other. And so Jesus has just told his disciples, if you do these things, you'll, you'll enjoy this type of relationship with me, but not, I'm not speaking to every single one of you. There's someone in this room that I'm, I'm not talking about. The disciples had, had heard this promise from Jesus that one day the Comforter or the Holy Spirit would come and when he did, he would help them to understand these things that Jesus has said and he would empower them to live for the glory of God. And Jesus now is calling his disciples to this new life that they would find in him and what he is doing is he's strengthening his disciples in himself and he does this again because of his love for them. But even as he does so, he, he's making clear there's an exception in the room. Judas, counted with the 12 of Jesus, is a pretender. He has come so close in his life to what is right and true, but he has not embraced it and believed it for himself. And Jesus, who knows the hearts of all as God, knows the heart of Judas. He knows this, why? Because of the sovereignty of God who is over all things. Because of the omniscience of God. He knows everything. And so here, we are confronted with some tension-laden truths in verse 18. Jesus says, I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. Judas, we see, makes his choice to betray Jesus. He chose to turn away from the things of God. He chose to give Satan control of his life. However, the other side of that tension is this, that Jesus as God, knew these men and knew the choices that they would make, including Judas. So Jesus had chosen these men as his disciples. He knew what they would believe. And so we see here once again that which we find throughout Scripture. There is a necessary tension in the Scripture that's presented of divine sovereignty, that there is a God who knows all things, and he's over all things, and he works all things to his perfect will, and you find also the free will of man to make a choice whether he's going to believe in God or not. And they exist like this all throughout the Scripture, hand in hand. And here is Jesus as the sovereign Lord, he is God, and he's never taken by surprise. It is impossible for God to have no idea who will trust him and who will reject him. There is not this concept of Judas betrays him and, and Jesus sitting around going, huh, didn't see that coming. Because it's impossible for God to, to not know that. He knows all things. And yes, even the sin of betraying the Son of God then is part of of the sovereign plan of God to bring about the salvation of man. See, you and I, we we like nice little, tidy little packages and boxes, right? That that God's going to do something good, so he's going to have all these good things, and it's only going to be good things that God uses. But God says, I'm going to use the betrayal of one of the closest ones of Jesus to bring about this plan. 
So therefore, Jesus chose these 12 men in particular, even Judas, knowing everything about them. Judas was chosen that he might bring about the plan of God. So therefore, Jesus could say here that the scriptures would once again be fulfilled because God had ordained it to occur. At the end of verse 18, Jesus is quoting from Psalm 41. In Psalm 41, David, the psalmist, speaks of the traitorous things that had happened to him when his son Absalom rebelled and usurped the kingdom for a time. And in Psalm 41.9, you read this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. David's friend, and, and most people agree that David is most likely here speaking of his friend Ahithophel, betrayed him, joining Absalom's rebellion against King David. And Jesus now cites this passage here in John chapter 13 at the Last Supper, and he declares that this passage has a greater fulfillment in him as the Son of God. Jesus is a descendant of the line of David. And just like his far-off earthly ancestor, Jesus will feel the sting of betrayal as Judas commits this heinous act. Yet, this betrayal is exactly what God planned to use. Jesus had come to fulfill the redemption of man from sin. He came as the deliverer, the son of God who would crush the head of the serpent. And in telling his disciples these things, that, that this is what's going to occur, he is confirming for them yet again his identity and, and his sovereignty, strengthening their faith in him. And so what you see in God's sovereign plan here in verses 19 and 20, you, you see Jesus' purpose in telling his disciples these things. He says, I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So Jesus has just confirmed for his disciples a fulfillment of the Old Testament in his death. And in so doing, he sets up the fulfillment to confirm himself as the Messiah. So here's the thing. Only the Messiah... Only the, the word incarnate, God in flesh, can know this is what's going to happen. Only God can state that something that was recorded hundreds of years earlier will be fulfilled in Jesus in just a little bit. Jesus does this to continue to build the faith and trust of his disciples in him. And he is giving them all they need to know that he is who he says he is. And this is an undeniably strong argument. And you see here at the end of verse 19, Jesus says this, when it does take place, that you, that when it does take place you may believe that I am he. And, and here's one of those translation things again, when you come from the Greek into the English. Okay? The, the he there, you may have a Bible that has that word in italics. And that's not in italics because it's important. It's in italics because it's been provided by the translator for your understanding. And in some passages that he is something that's there, but, but I, along with most people, will argue that this is a, a point at which that he is unnecessary, because what is Jesus saying here? That you may believe that I am. Now that may ring a bell, because in Exodus chapter 3, Moses wanted to know, who are you, God, who is sending me to the people? And he said, you tell them, I am. It's a title that God uses for himself as the self-existent God. And we've seen it before in John that Jesus has said this about himself before, and he is saying it here again. 
He is claiming the name of God by which he calls himself in the Old Testament as the self-existent, uncreated creator. And Jesus as God can and does claim this title as his own. We see throughout the book of John, we see him use this. In John chapter 4 and verse 26, when he speaks to the woman at the well, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am, and of course you have he, but again, it's another one of those, I am. John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. John 8, 58, Jesus said it to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So all throughout the book of John, John has showed us that Jesus clearly equated himself with God, and his claims, by the way, were not missed by the people who were there. We read in John chapter 5 and verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And in John 8, 59, right after Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And here again in John chapter 13, Jesus confirms his identity as God. This is necessary for the disciples because they're about to experience the shock of Judas's betrayal, and they're about to watch Jesus, whom they believe he is the Messiah, and he is, but they're about to watch him be crucified. And he wants them to know and to understand beyond shadow of a doubt that he is God. And furthermore, what they're about to see is part of the plan of God and the sovereignty of God in the salvation of mankind. So therefore, their faith in Jesus is not in vain. And furthermore, they are commissioned to do the work of God by their faith in Jesus. In fact, Jesus says these things in order to strengthen their faith in him as the Messiah and to anchor the object of their faith in himself. And I want to just spend just a minute on that. Here is Jesus saying, I want you to believe in me. And again, I I think sometimes we kind of get this idea of faith and these things. They They get jumbled up by our culture and the world we live in and just our own brains, right? And then people say, you just got to believe, right? Believe. Believe in what, right? Well, and people say, well, I have faith, or I I believe. And that's not the point. Here's the thing. The, The scriptures tell us that you're not just supposed to believe. You're supposed to believe in someone. You're supposed to believe in God. That's the object of our faith. Faith is useless without an object. You just say, well, you just all got to have faith. And again, the question is, faith in what, right? Because I don't know about you, but when the world is crashing down around me, it doesn't do me any good just to have faith. I have to believe that there is a God who is in control. And when I'm faced with the prospect that I will die and face eternity somewhere, it doesn't do me any good just to believe that there's something out there. I need to have someone who I can count on. And that's what Jesus says here. When things, because in, in, just a, in just a few short chapters, in just a few short hours after Jesus would say this, the disciples' world is completely turned upside down. One whom they trusted, we'll talk about that in just a minute, but one whom they trusted betrays Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, the one they have watched do countless miracles, signs, showing that he is the Son of God, is nailed to a cross dead. In that moment, it's not just, well, just believe. It's believe in me. 
this is who I am. And the same is, is broadcasted to us today. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God himself who has given himself to take your place and offer you salvation. Jesus is the risen Lord who gives you new life in him and has sent the Holy Spirit to give you strength to live for him. Jesus is the sovereign Lord of salvation. And these things that, that, that Jesus goes through, the things that come about in your life, are part of God's sovereign plan. Jesus furthermore says, not only can they then believe in him, that he is the Messiah, but they can have confidence in the commission they have received from him as the Messiah. <clears throat> in the past, the disciples have received this commission from Jesus to go and to do, to do things for him and to, and to preach in his name, and they're again going to receive a commission in the future, and they can be assured that they would be doing the work of God. Because again, the coming shock of Judas' betrayal and, and the death of Jesus could seem to undermine any commission he would give them, right? Because what good is it if one of your own has betrayed? What good is it if the man you follow is dead, but Jesus says that he is not a hapless victim taken by surprise and crucified against his will. He is instead fulfilling the plan set forth by God the Father. So therefore... Even after the events of the Passion Week concluded, the disciples could still trust and follow Jesus. And he says that anyone who received them, who were sent by Jesus, believing what they said, would receive Jesus. And anyone who receives Jesus, he says, is thereby receiving the Father. Please understand that there is power in the message of the gospel. That when you share God's word with others, giving them the message of life in Jesus... You are sharing God's truth backed by God's word. It is that which is given by God himself. And if you're a disciple, if you are a follower of God, one redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, you have a wonderful calling on your life to tell others about what Jesus has done for you and them. So the question we constantly have to ask ourselves is, who has God put in our lives that we need to give the message of the gospel to today? Jesus, in love, sought to strengthen the disciples' faith and calling, reinforcing the sovereignty of God in these things. And so now, we begin to see some of the fallout of this amongst the disciples, and we see some understanding distress that happens because of this. But even in this, the sovereignty of Jesus is reinforced once again. In the rest of the passage, in verses 21 through 30, we see Jesus' sovereign authority over these things. In verses 21 through 25, we see the troubling nature of sin. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? John has showed us, as all the Gospels do, that Jesus is both God and man. It is, it is the dual nature of who he is. He's 100% God and 100% man, and as such, we see his humanity as much as his deity. That Jesus did not cease to be God in his incarnation, and as was the case in John 12, with the rejection of Israel coming into view and the cross looming, we see once again 
the human side coming through as Jesus is troubled in his spirit once again. That the weight of Judas' betrayal sits heavy on the Lord. And we understand this, first of all, because sin grieves God. It goes against his holy, perfect nature. It is rebellion against him. and has horrible consequences, and it always has fallout. Jesus is troubled because of what he will experience in his betrayal. This means that Judas is rejecting him. And what is he choosing instead? He's choosing separation from God. And Judas' betrayal then will also lead to the cross. And though Jesus will go willingly to the cross, it is still a troublesome experience that awaits him because he will experience separation from God the Father as he becomes sin for us. And his sin of rejection that Judas commits will also then have repercussions on the disciples. And this is also a very troubling thing. The disciples, if you'll, you'll think back over the book of John even, they have watched the, numbers of, the number of followers dwindle over the last three years when it comes to Jesus. Because many came to experience the incredible signs and wonders. They came to, to gawk at the miracle worker from Galilee. They came to benefit from free food and free health care. They came to seek signs and wonders. But when Jesus called, especially in John chapter 6, for their personal faith in himself, they turned and walked away. They couldn't place this type of faith in Jesus. So naturally, what's, what Jesus says is going to happen is very disturbing to the disciples. Because now there's, there's just 12 of them. It's been that way for a little bit now. And they cannot fathom that one in this close-knit group would defect, rejecting Jesus and betraying him to those who wish to destroy him. So they do what any of us would do. They hear what Jesus says... And they begin to wonder, who is Jesus talking about? You can almost see them looking around the table at one another, wondering, who is Jesus referring to in this group that's going to betray him? Matthew records the uncertainties of their own hearts in this matter. We read in Matthew chapter 26, verses 21 and 22, and they were, as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And that's a very powerful thing. It's also, by the way, a very telling thing about Jesus' own deception of the disciples. They didn't all look and go, well, it's obviously him, right? Judas lived a lie, and he lived it very effectively. In fact, you read this passage in Matthew, you get the impression Judas is the one too, right? He looked, is it I, when he knew well and good that it was him. So instead, the disciples begin to wonder who it is, and here we see Two of the disciples see an opportunity to gain more clarity on this matter. We read here in, in verse 23 that one of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and, and this, this is the one who is reclining next to Jesus. The phrasing in the original Greek here speaks of uh, this is the disciple who is near Jesus' bosom in this position. So if you kind of imagine here, again, I've, I've spoken a little bit about how, how people ate at a meal like this. They, they didn't sit in chairs. They reclined at a table. And most of the time, they would recline on their left elbow as they did so, so they could eat with their right hand. And so the person who is to the right of you would kind of be in your space a little bit. They would be the one who's closest to you and would give you the opportunity to kind of lean over and speak quietly to that person who is immediately there 
to your, to your left. He's going to be then, this disciple whom Jesus loved, afforded the opportunity to lean in close and whisper to Jesus. Now, when you read this, the disciple whom Jesus loved, just understand this is John, the one who wrote the gospel. That's how he refers to himself throughout this. I think we talked about it at the very beginning. But he experienced in his life the love of Jesus firsthand, that he and the Lord were, were close in this matter. Now, and please understand here, John is not bragging. Notice he's not bragging of his own love and devotion. He's not saying, you know, the disciple who really loved Jesus and everybody else didn't. But he's saying what? The disciple whom Jesus loved. What is he doing? He's reminiscing and reveling in the love that he felt from Jesus in his own life. That's a love that that you and I should be overwhelmed with and and understand and experience when we read the scriptures because it's the same love that Jesus has for us. And then you read about Peter, who who always wants to do something, right? You can almost see that. You know, here's Peter, here's John, and Peter's like, hey, hey, you know, ask him, right? Right? He's like, you want me to pass you something or, you know? And he wants them to, to ask Jesus, who is it? Who is it who is actually going to betray him? Who is the, what is the specific identity? And who among these men would do such a thing? Again, understand this is an unfathomable thing, both from the standpoint of the presumed loyalty of all who are there and their own beliefs about Jesus. If you believe that Jesus is God, who's going to betray God, Right? And if you believe that everyone there is loyal, who've who've watched everything else be whittled down, who's going to do this? So therefore, even as Jesus identifies Judas, they're still going to struggle to grasp with what is happening. We see at the end of this passage the betrayal and confusion that takes place. Jesus answered, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So Jesus, it's actually very likely here that Jesus only told John that the one to whom he gives the bread after the dipping is the betrayer. Because the idea here isn't that John was, was loudly broadcasting, but he was quietly leaning in and Jesus spoke back to him. You know, we don't, we don't have all the details. I, in my mind, because I have an overactive imagination, seeing John looking at Peter going, you know, okay? But that may be just, you know, maybe that's just me, okay? I can tell you this, it's not important because otherwise the scriptures would have told us. We also understand then that Jesus didn't say out loud because what Jesus tells John occurs and the disciples are still confused. By the way, I happen to think, by the way, too, that John still is trying to understand and put all the pieces together, though he may know what Jesus is saying. But here's what what Jesus tells them, that that he whom he gives the morsel to is the one who will will betray him. What, What he's talking about here, he's talking about an unleavened piece of bread that was dipped in a mixture of bitter herbs, vinegar, water, salt, crushed dates, figs, and raisins. And, and this was a sign of friendship and honor that was done at this meal. It was an honor to receive this. So what Jesus offers to Judas is a sign of friendship and an extension of grace to him. It is, in some ways, the last opportunity Judas will have to turn his heart to Jesus. But in his heart, 
Though he receives the morsel, Judas rejects Jesus. Therefore, we read in verse, in verse 27, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. He gave Satan free reign of his life to do his work and perform his duty. So therefore, Jesus, knowing this, instructs him to leave and perform this, what he's going to do. It's actually interesting here what Jesus says here. He says at the end of verse 27, what you are going to do, do quickly. If you go back again and you, and you read the, the original Greek, the idea here is what you're going to do, do more quickly. You need to, come on, we need to, we need to speed this up. And you say, wow, what is Jesus doing here? He's showing us once again his sovereign authority over these things. No one could take and arrest Jesus and submit him to the death of the cross without Jesus' authority. No one could advance the plan of salvation that God had laid out. God, Jesus is God, is the one who is in control of these things. And so here, even as Judas has given himself to the service of Satan, Jesus is the one, and again, this is a command, this is an imperative form of the verb. He is commanding Judas in what he should do, setting the timetable for his coming death. Now, the disciples, seeing what would to them be a display of honor, are confused. They don't believe that Judas is the betrayer, but he has given, been given some special mission by Jesus. Maybe he is, he is going out to buy more food for the, for the things they eat. It was typical at Passover that you would give things to the poor. So, again, because he's the, the, the guy with the, the money bag, he's the treasurer, perhaps he's going out to, to give to the poor in, in service of the Lord. And again, John, who receives this answer from Jesus, it's, it's a question whether or not at the time he has even put the pieces together. Judas departs, preparing to bring about Jesus' end. And as he does, let's close by looking here today at verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. I mean, this is an interesting time marker that John gives us, that it was night, and obviously it's there's part of it's okay, we understand it's nighttime, but there's also a very ominous tone that John sets here by the choice of this wording, both for Jesus' ministry and Jesus' life. Jesus, in John chapter 12, has just warned the Jews of his coming death and eventual ascension to the Father, and he implored the people there to trust in him with these words. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. At the end of, of this account that we read here today, John's phrase that it was night signals both the end of the physical day and also the ending of Jesus' ministry, especially in Jesus' heart and life. You see, what Judas does does here is Judas chose the darkness. He chose to reject God. He chose to turn his back on the Messiah and in eternity he would pay dearly for it. He walked with the light of the world but he shut his eyes to the truth and continued on in darkness. He would fully embrace that darkness now as the betrayer of the Son of God. As you look back over history, or maybe people you know in your life, we sometimes say something like that. Well, this person had every opportunity in life, and he squandered it. 
And there is no greater illustration of that than in the life of Judas. He had every opportunity to place his faith and trust in Jesus and who he is. And he turned his back on the Savior. But again, we understand that this was all under God's sovereignty knowing these things. That though the darkness is falling, the light will shine again through salvation in Jesus' finished work. Again, his disciples are going to look around and question and wonder But they are to go back to these truths, that Jesus is the sovereign Lord of salvation. And because God is sovereign, his eternal purposes and plans will be accomplished in all things. God is sovereign in all things. He uses even the rejection of man in his perfect plan. And on this side of eternity, you and I don't always understand it. You have probably been faced with countless things in your life that you don't understand. And some of them, maybe you look back in your life and you get a little more perspective, but some things you still don't know why. And you won't know why on this side of eternity. The evil plans and choices of man cannot thwart the plan of Almighty God. At the end of it all, God will be glorified. He will judge sin and sinners, and he will be the victor. Judas is a challenge to our own hearts today. Because here is one so close to the things of God, yet he refused to place personal faith in God. My friend, you can be in all the right places with all the right people and say all the right things and seemingly do all the right actions, and it doesn't make an iota of difference in your life without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Churches are filled with people who show up every week give money, say nice things, help people, and more, but they don't know Jesus Christ. There's a difference. God's standard is the standard of the heart. It's the heart that must be transformed in order to see outward change. We're not here to modify behavior. We're not here to put on a show. We're studying the word of God and proclaiming the gospel that lives can be transformed for the glory of God by the work and power of God. And if you've never accepted Jesus Christ, if you've never truly humbled yourself before him and him alone, today you can do that. In the life of a disciple, there's going to be times of correction in your own heart. There will be attitudes, actions, and inactions that need to be addressed. And this isn't because without them, you're some second-class Christian, or without them, you won't go to heaven. This is because it is impossible to experience the recreation of your inner man without some type of outer change. And the question that you have to ask yourself is, when is the last time that God's Holy Spirit did a work in my heart, and when is the last time I listened to that and, and humbled myself and said, yes, Lord, I, I need to change. I need you to do that in my heart and life. And if the answer is, well, God doesn't change me, I'm perfect, then you need to look at the Scripture a little harder. And if the answer is, well, God wanted me to change it, but I just don't think I'm wrong, you need to study the Scripture a little harder and, and humble yourself before the Lord. It is impossible to be recreated by God and not experience the, the growth and change of your life and be right with God. 
There's a commentator that, that once said, it's impossible for a man to come to God and not be changed, just as it's impossible for a man to come in contact with a 220-volt wire and not be changed. You grab a bare copper wire, a bare, bare 220-volt wire, it's going to change your personality, right? If God truly gets a hold of your heart and you truly have been saved by him, it's going to change your personality, it's going to change your life. And it's a change that goes from now to the day you die. The world we live in is dark. We can take confidence in the sovereignty of God, in his calling, in his mission to us, his followers. He is the sovereign Lord of salvation. So share the message of the gospel, live in fellowship with God, and love others for the glory of God. The mission of disciples is very simple. Make more disciples. And we can rest assured that God will give us the power to carry this out. It's his amazing, incredible work. So let us do our part submitting ourselves to him today. Father, thank you for the time we've had to look at your word today. Thank you for the power of God that uses your word to change us. Thank you for the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to show us that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but you have died and risen again to give us life eternal and to give us new life on this earth. And today, Lord, we want you to have the freedom to do your work in our hearts. Lord, I, I don't know the hearts of every person in this room, the heart of every person who hears the message of the gospel today. But Lord, I pray that if there is one who has continued to hear the truth and turned away from it or has put on a show or has just tried to get someone off their back or whatever it may be, that you would again hammer the message of the gospel home to them today and draw them to yourself. May you give them the courage and the boldness to respond, the humility to accept Jesus Christ today. Lord, I pray for Christians who hear this today, that you would continue to use your word in our hearts. Lord, we admit there's things we struggle with. And sometimes that's all we want to do is just admit, well, we struggle. But God, we need, we need your help to change, that we can continue to grow and, and be more like Jesus Christ. We can rely on your strength and your power to live for your kingdom. And Lord, would you... Would you put in our hearts today, as Christians, someone whom you know, that we know, that we need to share the gospel with? And would you give us the courage and the boldness to reach it out to that person, to share with them? Maybe we've done it before and many times over, but when we do it once again, share with them what you have done for us. Show them how much you love and care for them and invite them to be a part of your kingdom. Lord, we ask as we leave this place in a few minutes that you would watch over us and keep us safe and bring us back here in your house again tonight to worship you as we open your word again, challenge us from it. In your name we pray, amen.